Our second lesson this morning comes from the 15th chapter of the Gospel of Luke. In this chapter, Jesus shares three parables about lost things. There's the parable of the one lost sheep out of a flock of a hundred, the parable of the one lost coin out of a stash of ten, and this morning's parable of the lost sons. So now I invite you to listen as I read from Luke 15, verses 1 through 3 and 11 through 32. Together, let us listen for the word of God. Now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to Jesus, and the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling and saying, This fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. There was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that will belong to me. So he divided his property between them. A few days later, the younger son gathered all he had and traveled to a distant country, and there he squandered his property in dissolute living. When he had spent everything, a severe famine took place throughout that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed the pigs. He would gladly have filled himself with the pods that the pigs were eating, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired hands have bread enough and to spare, but here I am, dying of hunger. I will get up and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired hands. So he set off and went to his father. But while he was still far off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran and put his arms around him and kissed him. Then the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, quickly bring out a robe, the best one, and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet and get the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his elder son was in the field. And when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. He called one of the slaves and asked what was going on. He replied, your brother has come and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has got him back safe and sound. Then he became angry and refused to go in. His father came out and began to plead with him, but he answered his father, listen. For all these years, I have been working like a slave for you, and I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you have never given me even a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came back, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. Then the father said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. 
But we had to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours was dead and has come to life. He was lost and has been found. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. My colleague, Dr. Heather Shortledge, recalls helping her grandparents move to a new assisted living apartment. She writes, they had instructed the Packers to carve up their home into three categories. Stuff for the new apartment, stuff for the on-site storage unit, and stuff for the off-site storage unit. New apartment items were a no-brainer. Their hand-carved headboard and mattress that had been a wedding present, her grandfather's mandolin and guitar, which he played every night after dinner, the television, and their matching green rockers. The stuff for the on-site storage unit was all of the in-between stuff. Things like their road bikes that had carried them through the Alps, her grandfather's ham radio, and her mother's multiple, grandmother's multiple sewing machines. Off-site storage consisted of things no one wanted but didn't have the heart to get rid of. Dusty stamp collections, a complete set of encyclopedias, ornate church hats and matching pocketbooks, camping gear from the 1980s. If only it had been that easy. Boxes marked for the bathroom ended up holding the contents of the spice cabinet. The boxes mysteriously labeled loungewear turned out to be the patio furniture. And one item, the silverware, was nowhere to be found. The missing flatware sent Heather's grandmother over the edge. She tore apart the carefully unpacked apartment searching every drawer and cabinet for a hint of her missing utensils. She looked inside the refrigerator and deep into the belly of the washing machine. She slinked her 83-year-old body down to the ground, sweeping her arms underneath the bed and behind the couch. For one whole week, the search continued. Her grandmother skipped church, barely ate a thing, and called the moving company every day to inquire about her missing silverware. Heather writes, when the movers were not overly responsive, she charmed a few gullible maintenance men, convincing them to embark on her missing silverware search. With the help of their biceps, Heather's grandmother opened each and every box in the on-site storage unit, convinced she would find it. For an entire week, missing teaspoons and salad forks ruled the roost. Heather happened to arrive on day four of the frantic flatware search, and her own patience was not so robust. After just an hour of climbing around the off-site storage unit, she said, can't we just go to Target and buy some new forks? For $20, the problem of the missing silverware could be fixed, finally and forever. But even a Target superstore could not stand in her grandmother's way. 49 boxes later, she hit the jackpot. Buried at the very bottom of a tall wardrobe box in the off-site storage unit, that plastic white tray with the three dividers down the middle revealed itself. Twelve spoons, twelve knives, and twelve forks. Heather says, you would have thought the president had called or one of her beloved sisters had come back to life. Door to door she went, telling each of her new neighbors the good news. The silverware had been found, all was right with the world, and that in a day or two, once she got all those darn boxes out of her living room, they would have to come over and celebrate. 
Sounds like a modern-day retelling of Jesus' parables of lost things, doesn't it? Silverware could line right up with the sheep, the coin, and the sons. One more lost thing, or 36 lost things, gone missing, and the owner goes searching manically until they are found. Heather's grandmother's home was incomplete until those forks, knives, and spoons were found. Once recovered, it was time to have a party. The end. Each one of those lost tales includes a party, right? The shepherd throws a party, the woman throws a party, the father throws a party, all's well that ends well. Or not. Because that third parable actually ends with a cliffhanger of sorts, not with a party, but with a plea to the older son. The parable begins with a familiar phrase, at least to Luke's original hearers. Their ears would perk up at hearing there was a man who had two sons. The story of the people of Israel is filled with stories of siblings, Cain and Abel, Isaac and Ishmael, Jacob and Esau, Leah and Rachel. These siblings wrestle with each other and with the hope of blessings and birthrights. Such tussles are part of the narrative of the people of God. Struggles have always been part of this story, as have indulgent fathers who favor younger brothers. There's a debate among scholars about whether the younger brother in the parable is all that repentant or not. Dr. Amy Jill Levine argues that the first century hearers would have been suspicious of him and his wily ways. And yet, everyone agrees the father celebrates his return. Levine argues that the father is concerned to have his younger son return and to have his family restored and reconciled, to have his family be complete and whole again. That's why the father leaves the party to go out and plead with the older son, just as he goes out earlier to greet the younger like the shepherd who realizes his flock is incomplete with only 99, like the woman who turns the house upside down to find the one coin, the father is determined to bring both sons back into the fold. He seems less concerned with why they are lost than he is about making sure they are both returned, restored, and found. And while Luke speaks of repentance multiple times in these parables, neither the sheep nor the coin repents, nor does either brother, really. The shepherd goes and finds, the woman goes and finds, the father goes and finds. The emphasis is on restoring the whole, making the flock and the family complete again. And the catch is recognizing that something or someone is lost to begin with. Now, one would imagine that it takes a while for a shepherd to miss one sheep out of a hundred. It would take a little time to look at a stack of nine coins and miss the tenth. Levine argues that it takes the younger son's return from a distant country for the father to recognize that he has lost his older son, too, right in his own backyard. This parable is beloved, and the father has long been understood as a metaphor to, for God, the God who runs to welcome the prodigal home, as our brief statement of faith recalls. And while I still hold that to be true, I'm not sure that's the only message in this parable. God does not lose things, or people after all, but on occasion we do. 
For weeks now, we've been on a winding journey with Jesus to Jerusalem. It had twists and turns. It also has a beginning and an end. And throughout this journey, Luke's Jesus is seeking to prepare his disciples for what lies ahead. And to shape a redeemed community that will carry on his ministry of redemption and reconciliation after he has gone from their sight. He wants them to see what they may be missing. A few years ago, a friend and colleague posted a story about a record number of black and Latino teens who had gone missing in Washington, D.C. over the course of one month and about the minimal attention this crisis had received. It was as though almost no one had noticed. And while some of these young people were found, at the time of the, that the story was written, there were still ten or so who had not. Now, maybe some had run away. Maybe some had been abducted. Maybe the cases were related. Maybe the disappearances were simply a grim coincidence. Whatever the reason, whatever the cause, these children were missing. And when even one child is missing, we are not whole. God's family is incomplete. Dave and I traveled back to Chambersburg, Pennsylvania for about 48 hours this past week. He went to coordinate an endowed lecture series at the college where he has taught for 19 years. I went to tag along and hear the speaker, Dr. Amy Jill Levine, whom I quoted a few moments ago. After sitting mesmerized by her words in a lecture and a workshop, we gathered with friends for a party. We woke up groggy on Friday morning and drove to Baltimore to catch our flight home, and traffic was terrible. There was no sign of construction, so we couldn't figure out what was causing the rippling brake lights. And then we started to notice a pattern. There were pickups, jeeps, minifans, and semis with flags, and wa flags waving and words written on windows and shoe polish. We had stumbled across members of the convoy heading to D.C. Now, I'm certain that, every, that people of every political stripe were frustrated by the disruption on Interstate 70. But I found myself seeing the older brother in the faces of these men and women. Whether I agree with their tactics or not, they clearly feel unappreciated, forgotten, and overlooked. They are angry, and they are hurt. They feel like they are missing out, and that no one has bothered to miss them. Dear Evan Hansen is a Broadway musical that was made into a film in recent years. And as you may know, it is the complicated story of an outsider who finds himself suddenly thrust into the aftermath of another family's tragedy. He rapidly goes from being a nobody to a viral sensation. And one of the most haunting and powerful songs in this musical is You Will Be Found. Some of the lyrics go like this. Have you ever felt like nobody was there? Have you ever felt forgotten in the middle of nowhere? Have you ever felt like you could disappear, like you could fall and no one would hear? Well, let that lonely feeling wash away. Maybe there's a reason to believe you'll be okay. Because when you don't feel strong enough to stand, you can reach, reach out your hand and oh, someone will come running. And I know they'll take you home. 
Even when the dark comes crashing through, when you need a friend to carry you, and when you're broken on the ground, you will be found. So let the sun come streaming in, because you'll reach up and you'll rise again. Lift your head and look around. You will be found. The song, like the shepherd, the woman, the father, and Heather's grandmother, notices who is missing and insists that the broken will be made whole, that the partial will be made complete, that the lost will be found. The show has resonated with audiences of all ages, but it has particularly resonated with teenagers and young adults, too many of whom know what it means to be lost, overlooked, forgotten, or written off. I wonder what it would sound like for this song to be the church's anthem. What if the body of Christ celebrated our being found by noticing who is missing, who is lost, overlooked, forgotten, or written off? What if we threw ourselves into seeking them out? It's not the most prudent mission by the world's standards. It's a bit messy, a bit risky, and maybe even a bit absurd. Heather's grandmother tore through 49 boxes to find the missing silverware. The shepherd leaves 99% of his flock to go in search of one sheep. The woman tears her entire home apart for one coin. The father leaves the lavish celebration behind, all because they notice that something is missing, all because they are determined to bring every lost one home, all because they know they are not whole until the last one has been found. We do not know if the elder son agrees to come to the party. He may be too hurt, too angry, too jealous, or too weary to find a way to rejoin the family. What we do know is that the father makes it clear that this older one is beloved and missed, just as the younger son was and is. What would it look like for the church to model ourselves on the shepherd, the woman, or the father? What would it look like for us to let our guard down, to stop waiting for the lost and the left out to find us? What would it look like for us to seek out the lost and the left out, to tell them, you will be found, you have already been found, just as we have? Can you imagine a better way to serve and honor the very one who has sought and found us? Can you imagine the rejoicing in heaven? That's one party I do not want to miss. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Mm -hmm.